Oh, hello, we're here. It's episode four of Branching Factor, another episode of our wonderful new shiny gaming podcast. We're here, we're doing it, we're live. Oh, I'm just trying to match the, the, the energy of our intro music. It's like it's very difficult to then just like cool down into like our much more chill, supposedly serious, supposedly educational show right after that. Thanks again to Ben for making such banging tunes. So again, once once again, well, hello, welcome to Branching Factor. I'm your host, Tommy Thompson, and today for our fourth episode, we're sitting down with another one. In fact, the last of our gang of four lovely co-hosts, last but most certainly not least, because then I'd, I'd be in a lot of trouble, and also it's really not reflective of your wonderful background and experience. <laughs> Please say hello to Anne Sullivan. Hello, Anne. How are we doing? Hello, Tommy. I'm uh, doing great. How are you? I'm good. I'm still trying to ride high on the energy. Good. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm good. I'm good. I, uh, I, I am. I am questioning your comment about this being a serious podcast. I mean, I have concerns. I think. I think if we're both here, there's a slight hint of seriousness, but also a bit of playfulness. I think that's always been. That's kind of our. That's kind of our vibe. I think we can be professional <laughs> when we want to be. We just choose not I think to. you can yeah I think you can be professional when you want to be <sighs> nonsense so yeah <laughs> just to introduce the, the podcast as we roll out for these first few episodes it's good to just kind of get people in the mind space of what branching factor is all about so this is another gaming podcast because you know there clearly wasn't enough to begin with but really for us it's all about discussing game development and games research in a much more interesting and involved way uh everybody that we've got here as part of the co-host team um, as part of also our guests that will be coming up, we all work in and around games in some way or another, be it we work in the games industry and or we work in research spaces, maybe we're academics, lecturers, whatever. And this is very much in keeping with a lot of the work that I do over on YouTube as part of AI and games to sort of demystify all things games and discuss it in a moderately intelligent way. And that's why, you know, I sat down and asked all these wonderful people to come and join me as part of Branching Factor. And this brings us, of course, to Anne, because Anne, so Anne and I, we've, we've known each other for, in some space for a while now. I'm trying to think how long we've actually known each other. Like, let's, let's not quite, a, let's, let's not try to It's not as bad it. as Mike, but my, my, yeah, let's not quantify it. But I know Mike and I <laughs> realised we've known each other for about a decade, which was a little horrifying when we first put that together. <laughs> but we've known each other for a long time, but we've, we, a lot of our work kind of intersects a little with one another. And we've had, it's, I find it really interesting just learning more and more about yourself and your background and where you've came from. So on that note, and for the benefit of the audience, who are you, what have you done and why are you here? That is not a big question at all. Not at all. Um, <laughs> okay. So, so do it in 90 seconds or less. <laughs> <laughs> okay, 90 seconds or less. Uh, I'm an assistant professor of digital media at Georgia Tech in the School of Literature, Media, and Communication. And I research around, do research around game design and AI and a ton of other things that are somewhat related. And because I am the opposite of Tommy, uh, I used to be in the game industry, but now I'm in academia. Yeah, and I think this is this. We're going to get into this as well. I'm actually quite excited about this because we've never really talked about. I've, I mean, we've talked a lot about research interests and like some of the stuff that we're working on, and particularly how our work maybe intersects and often doesn't, which is also interesting. But 
critically, I've never heard an awful lot about your career path and how you got into this. And I think that's been one of the fun things about chatting with everyone in our earlier episodes, whether it's been George, Quang, and Mike, was none of us have the same stories to tell either. We've all came into games in different avenues and different directions and stuff. And yeah, just generally as you were, we were as we were, because we do pre- we do prep this stuff. We have like a production document. <laughs> we do. Where we go away and we think about what this episode's going to be about. And you started writing down like your career, and um, and there was stuff in here I didn't even know about. I was like, "Oh wow, this sounds amazing!" Like, so we're going to totally get into this, and I think this is very exciting. But I think also just speaking for myself personally, we started only really talking to each other. I think on the regular, it wasn't like we were like, "I'm not talking to you," like that. Yeah. But <laughs> like, we only really started interacting with each other more. I'd say probably from about 2015, maybe onwards. And at that time, I think, yeah, eh, I don't know, that close. Maybe it was the it was the hand turkeys. The hand turkeys, critically. I think that's the first. That was the time that we really got to know each other, and that was Mm -hmm. when was that? Two thousand and I don't know my eighteen maybe. I have the photos. But I'll have to look it up. Um, actually, for 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 context, for anyone who's not familiar, Dagstool is this like research (sighs) retreat. Is usually the word I use to describe it, which sounds far weirdly glamorous um, and I'm always a little <laughs> conscious of saying it um, but yeah like, when, when really it's just a bunch of academics getting together and working yes right uh, but we, we get invited to like this um, this it, it's a German it's castle, a castle in the middle of yes. in the middle of nowhere um, and we're just sort of here's a topic for a week and we're all going to hang out and do research there and it's it's one of these things that they organize a seminar around a given topic in our case it was games and AI and they then invite people to it and it's been a real pleasure and an honor to be invited to that uh, oh god I, mean, I was even there last year um, which was wonderful as well and I think that's like the fourth or fifth time I've been and yeah so that year in particular, it, so last year it ran in the summer, but the year in question for this story, it ran, it was over Thanksgiving, right? Yes. And so <laughs> for, for those of us who didn't necessarily have Thanksgiving plans we had to stick to, we were able to go to this thing, but we were in Germany over Thanksgiving. And <laughs> I, I'm not exactly sure how it came up, but we decided that uh, Jillian Smith and I, who Jillian is not American, but she now lives in America, uh, in the US. So we decided that we would make hand turkeys to celebrate Thanksgiving on Thanksgiving, which for those who don't know, <laughs> it, it's where you put your hand on a piece of paper, you outline it with a pen, and then you cut it out, and then you decorate it to look like a turkey. This is something that we do in kindergarten, first grade, I don't know, fairly young, but we managed to convince pretty much everyone there to make <laughs> hand turkeys. And we put them all and everybody decorated them differently. There might've been a substantial amount of wine involved, but then we True. we took them all and we put them up on the big old pads of paper that they give us to brainstorm on. And we made, I think, three of them. And then we convinced <laughs> with the help with the help of the person running the seminar who was German. 
she we convinced her that this was worthy of this castle displaying in there as part of the art of the castle and so they actually kept them and from what i understand they are on display at this castle last i checked they're still there i remember (laughs) um it wasn't so we went we were there in 2019 and i think yourself and jillian couldn't make it for one reason or another um and then subsequently we had another one uh in 2022 which um, I've talked about this in other places, and I think Mike and I briefly spoke about it in our episode, but this was the first time a lot of us had got together. Um, it was quite an mm-hmm. emotional um, event, which, you know, you think about academic conferences or presenting work, it's kind of a different vibe at Dagstool because everyone kind of knows each other, and if you don't know them, you tend to know them a bit better by the end of it, which, like I say, is how we got to know each other better. Um, mm-hmm. And I, re- I distinctly remember you doing those turkeys because there was a... You felt quite homesick, I think, at the time. And yes, yes, you did say there's a bit of alcohol that probably had some helping hand in it. But I think generally the <laughs> vibe, everyone was like, what are you doing? And they're like, making hand turkeys. And we're like, okay, sure. Um, be- bearing in mind, if, a, if heaven forbid, in the absolute worst case scenario, if a bomb went off in this castle and killed everyone, we would have set back game AI research by about 10 to 20 years. Like, so you've got all these professors and doctors and assistant <laughs> professors, associate professors, all these like high ranking people in sort of academic circles, all making hand turkeys at like nine o'clock on a Thursday night or something like that. It was, it was amazing. Uh, so I also happened to have some scrapbook paper like in my luggage for reasons that made sense at the time. So we weren't using just regular paper to make our, our hand turkeys. We were using all this fancy, like patterned paper. And so people were mm-hmm, doing all mm-hmm. sorts of cool designs. It was a lot of fun. I mean, you do a lot of crafts anyway, don't you? So you've, I've always yeah. seen you like with those tools um, at hand, like, you know, ready, <laughs> steady craft. Here we go. Um, <laughs> yeah, I believe on the train out of there, I was doing some um, embroidery based on wave function collapse. So... <laughs> That's what I love it. But yes, I think the subsequent time we went, I remember, I can't remember if I spoke with Mike about this or Antonius Liapis, who is another mutual friend of ours, um, about, oh man, you know, you guys, you know, yourself and Jillian weren't around and that was rubbish. And we just on a whim, again, this might have been the alcohol talking, was, I wonder if they kept the turkeys. And so (laughs) the way that Dagstool works is it's kind of the they kind of give us carte blanche to do whatever you like. So they set up, they, they put us in this castle and it's like, okay, you can wander around and do whatever you like. There's like two rooms you're not allowed to go into. Um, and so we're just out for a wander. And we eventually found them. Um, they'd framed them and put them up in a wall in the new annex building that they just put together a couple of years prior. And so we were so excited and we ended up like running down and like taking photos and sending them to you and Gillian. Just it like, was oh my amazing. God, like, it was so nice. I, yeah. I just kind of wonder what people think. <laughs> you know, any other any other people from the US that end up over there, like, are those hand those are hand turkeys? Like, <laughs> like I've always I've always got the impression. So as I as I said already, um like the way Dagstool works is they sort of we like researchers pitch seminars to run there. And I've never been involved in the organization of one of these, but my understanding is they think that we are a bit mental because we'll have like, 
there's, there's usually there's usually two uh, two of these running at once, right? So you have like the big one, and it's usually as we're the big one, and there'll be a little seminar running in the same week, and it'll be like, um, you know, principles of graph theory, or you know, semantic web system design, or you know, something like this, something much more computer sciencey, and then they'll just have the AI and games people, and we're just running around like a bunch of nutters, like coming up with games and like playing werewolf until three in the morning and. Reading yes. cheese boards and and the wine cellar. Sort oh of my stuff. gosh! Yes. <laughs> yeah, I think that so. One of the things about Dogstool is that one of the rooms, the community rooms, there is just baskets and baskets and baskets of wine. Mm. And so, and you're welcome to just open and enjoy. And so, there's a lot of wine consumed during these things yeah i mean you know generally i think alcohol consumption at events like this is generally can be frowned upon or at least you know it's it's good to find there is alternatives by the way it is important to say it's not just they're like hello welcome to dog store here drink the wine there is <laughs> non-alcoholic options and whatever else but yeah it it's Interesting, I think, like Mike and I talked about it on our last episode about how when you are as part of your career in academia, it's like you write papers, you go and publish the work. So you go to a conference and you have to present the work. And then there's a bit of social proclivity, but by and large, it's all about going there, presenting your work, sounding somewhat intelligent and hoping you don't get heckled by someone who thinks they're smarter than you or, <laughs> or you know, someone who it's, is actually smarter than really you. Smarter. Yes. Um, but yeah, like Dagstool's kind of different in the, the social element is much bigger, much larger, I think, than in a lot of these other cases. And so, yeah, like we end up, mm. I I always end up coming back from Dagstool just utterly exhausted, but like in a good yeah. way, because it's, it's sort of, we end up hanging out and talking about weird and wonderful stuff until like three, four AM. And then it's like, oh no. And then it starts at, you know, breakfast is breakfast at eight, eight. Or whatever. <laughs> Yeah, I, well, part of it is that you can't go anywhere else. Mm. Like, you're just kind of stuck in the middle of the countryside. Yeah, it is like, what, it, two kilometers, three kilometers walk to, walk to the nearest town. Yes, and they have everything you need. So, And people brought games, so we'd be playing games. I think there was, a, you know, code names was constantly going, it felt like. But the uh, there are some academic conferences that are likewise sort of isolated so one of the earlier fdgs and sorry foundations of digital games which is one of the academic game conferences i would say one of the main ones they for a few years have had it on a cruise ship i, I never did the cruise ship years i i never it, went it's got its pros and cons <laughs> i'll just say that but it had a similar feel to dogstool in which you know, you can't really go anywhere. So all of the social aspects were done with other academics for better or for worse. Yeah, I think you always find, I think, different pockets at events like that. So you'll have maybe the crafting corner, such as yourself, and you'll have like, <laughs> you'll have that handful of people that play the same board game every night. Yes. Or there's one corner that's they really wanted to prototype some weird and wonderful little thing, so they spend three nights on their laptop or something like that. Um, or there's also the other corner where it's just two people 
slowly devouring bottles of wine, having some very <laughs> long form conversation. Um, that's that's seldom me. I don't find. I tend to. I'm a floater. Yeah, I don't. I I don't actually drink. So, well, I used to drink. I don't drink anymore. But it. Uh, I found it actually. At first, I thought it would be really weird going to academic conferences without drinking, but it's actually not a big deal. Yeah, I there think, is a lot of drinking, but you don't have to partake. Yeah, I think um, particularly actually the last ag stool, I I didn't drink as much because in general I've been tra- I've been cutting that down. But also, I am just one of the things I'm always this is getting into a slightly more serious territory. But one of the things I'm always very mindful of whenever we go to events, whether it's industry events, academic events, or whatever, is I'm a six foot tall, nearly two hundred pound Scottish guy, so. When people, sometimes people are very intimidated by me on first passing, which I don't think there's any justification for that because I'm a big moron. But, and you, you see through that, you're like, he's an idiot. But, like, I think- you Don't so, think so, you're so, an idiot. Oh, that's very sweet of you to say, but particularly while we're on a podcast right now. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll yeah, pay, I'll pay your dues after. later. Yeah, yeah, I'll ask you after. But <laughs> I think, you know, particularly when you meet a lot of people for the first time, they are just sort of like, oh, hey, like, who's that guy? And I'm just very mindful of like the the real estate that I take up, I guess, and then how that's mm-hmm. perceived. And so I think in general, I've been, a lot of these events, I, I, I used to, I think, particularly when it was a bit early on, it was, I used, maybe used to indulge a little bit more because you're just like, yeah, this is great. This is awesome. And then it's like, well, no, there should, you should actually be one, taking care of yourself better. Because I did, I'm pretty sure my very first conference, I did end up having an all-nighter um, and was still drunk turning up to like a, a 9 a.m. <laughs> plenary, um, like seminar or whatever. But also just sort of being mindful of other people in the space and mm-hmm. how they might perceive you or how they might feel, how they might, you know, welcome or whatever else as a result of that kind of behavior. And it's... Particularly as you get a bit older, I'm like, yeah, this is actually something I should really be thinking more about and doing better at, which I don't know. I think that's growth. I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm just that meme <laughs> with the, the guy with the butterfly. Is this growth? <laughs> um, <laughs> there we go. Yes. We'll ask him, get our, get the audience to make us up that GIF and, and send it over to yes. us. Tweet, tweet is the GIF. I think this will be great. Perfect. Um, just butterfly in one hand bottle of uh, low alcohol beer in the other <laughs> is, this gr- is this growth if you're a regular internet user you're probably pretty conscious about your safety while you know wandering around in this wonderful virtual space not least because you don't want people to know you've been binging all the content with my voice in it i mean heaven forbid this is where having a really solid VPN or virtual private network can be a boost. By using NordVPN, you can then go about your business on the internet without worrying about you or your data being tracked. Me, I like to use it when I'm researching a new video and it sometimes results in my going into some of the dark and damp corners of the internet. Ooh. But, you know, it also comes in handy for all the other reasons you would use a VPN, like streaming region lock content or occasionally buying a game from an overseas storefront, which is actually super handy in my line of work sometimes. Head on over to nordvpn.com forward slash AI and games to get a very special AI and games infused discount on a NordVPN subscription, complete with a 30 day money back guarantee. That's nordvpn.com forward slash AI and games. The link 
and all the other relevant details are also available in the episode notes too. But yeah, so we've kind of, it's funny because like I say, we've kind of seen, we've known each other for quite a while. We haven't seen each other in person. In... Since that duck store. Oh my God, was it? I believe so. Jeez. Because we speak to each other fairly regularly because um, we've also done the, um, so the Foundation of Digital Games, we were talking about that. They've been doing their live talk show, I guess. So <laughs> FDG TV, this was an idea they came up with during the pandemic where it was like they did like an evening talk show that was live streamed on YouTube. And it was meant to kind of fill the gaps of some of the social elements of the conference that didn't really exist on account of it being an entirely virtual conference and and COVID and everything else. And so you and I ended up becoming um, the... The, the hosts of FDG TV, which is funny because we say, oh, like we make it sound like this big production. It's like we live streamed it and it was like 12 people and a dog was watching on on on, on average. But <laughs> yes. I mean, it was good fun. And it was, I think, I don't know about yourself, but I found it was a really fun exercise, an interesting exercise in trying to repackage research in a way that's more engaging beyond like the typical like talk format. Yes. So I think... I think there's a lot of interesting things that have come out of FTG TV and I'm, you know, it may continue even though we're mostly in person now, but I think one of the things that I really appreciate about it was <laughs> in academic conferences, as Tommy said, sometimes you're up drinking late or sometimes you just want to sleep in. Sometimes you have to work. Sometimes you have meetings. And so people don't, always go to the talks and a lot of people feel like the talks aren't even the main purpose for being there which I kind of agree with but what would happen is that people that were already well known more people would go to their talks and so what we ended up doing was actually highlighting the the papers and the research of people that maybe were not as well known which I think actually ended up serving a really yeah. valuable purpose. Um, so we would specifically look for participants, or we'd ask people if we could interview them. And we were specifically looking at junior scholars. So maybe they don't have the name recognition yet. Um, you know, people of color, women, um, people from the LGBTQIA plus community, just so we could highlight some of the some of the research and perspectives that maybe weren't getting as much um weren't getting the limelight that they maybe deserved. Yeah. So I thought that ended up working really well despite the fact that we're, you know, mostly yeah. in person again. And I I thought that was a, you know, this was something that we sort of actually it's worth saying that like the team that was FDG TV, so it was and it was actually Antonius Leapis and Mike Cook who came up yes. with the idea and they reached out yes. to me and said, Hey, do you fancy doing this? I said, this is such a dumb idea. Why not? And originally it was just, it's an evening talk show that we're going to stream live on YouTube or whatever. And then it, over time, I think the concept matured to particularly as, as Anne suggests that we want to use it as a mechanism to highlight researchers, uh, different stages of, of career and showcase a bunch of research that even we ourselves are guilty of maybe, not turning up to those talks to find out about and <laughs> very you know, guilty 
Yep. I mean, sometimes it is just you're jet lagged or you were out too late the night before or you end up, hey, let's meet up and talk about a project or something. And so you look at this, the, the schedule and go, oh, I'll read the paper later. And then sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. Um, but I think critically given the, the, the virtual nature of these conferences as well, one of the things that it robs people of is if you're a junior academic, if you're in grad school and you're, this is my first time I'm publishing a paper or something and I'm getting to go into this space. Um, at this point, they know the Ann Sullivans of the world. We know the Mike Cooks of the world. And so they are, and I say, even from my own experience, this is an opportunity for you to network and meet people in that space. You can potentially yes. collaborate. You could, you could just be known. And I remember that so much from my own earlier conferences where I went, I met a bunch of people whose work I'd read and just had some nice conversations with them. And the following conference, they're like, oh, hey, Tommy, how you doing? Good to see you again. Mm -hmm. And it's, that's such a huge thing for people. And when you're doing that in the virtual space, you don't get that opportunity really to network. And so one of the things that we were essentially doing was kind of exposing the work of these, these junior scholars a little bit more, um, which was already awesome because we got to in interact with so many people doing very, very interesting things. And yes, hopefully absolutely. other people then got to see it as well and went and read the papers or spoke to them or whatever. <laughs> yeah. And I think the other thing that I've heard people really appreciate it is that we would, we, so before we would produce the, the show, we would actually go and read all the papers that of the people we were interviewing and we would come up with questions and we'd send them ahead of time. So the people actually had yeah had time to consider what they would say and so it ended up being you know there was some improvis improvisational uh, aspect to it but they felt prepared whereas a lot of times when you're giving a talk you never know what people are going to ask and as Tommy said earlier like sometimes you'll get somebody who stands up and is just you know there, there's kind of an ongoing joke and it's a joke because it's based on reality in which you know somebody will stand up and be like so what you've been doing you know do you know about this researcher from 1972 who did exactly <laughs> your work and why are you bothering to do this now you know there is that aspect to it and because we're coming at it from a very different perspective like we want the people that we're interviewing to actually be able to <laughs> i don't know um, feel welcome, for instance, and talk about their research. There isn't that kind of antagonistic undertone yeah. to it. And like, I feel like the, I, I do feel like academia is changing with the newer generations, like that antagonistic thing. I don't see it nearly as much as I did when I was in grad school, which I really appreciate. Yeah. I've, I've, I've always thought that was like such the, the weirdest, like, <clears throat> you know, for the purposes of like a thesis or whatever, it's it's in the it's in the it's in the name like you have to defend the thesis so you're always in that sense you're on the defensive but one of the things that mm -hmm. is so weird about publishing and going to academic communities is you're trying to meet new people and gain contacts and gain experience and maybe potentially work with them or just even just feed on their insights and their knowledge about things that you're trying to do you're like hey this is what my research is about and then they might have a perspective on it that you don't and that could be hugely influential in the work you're doing but then it's, it's incredibly intimidating because you come out and you've got your little poster or you've got your little 20 minute talk and you've got to present to all these people. And, you, you know, 
it it can be antagonistic. Sometimes people can just throw questions at you because they just don't they didn't like the talk and they just got mm-hmm. a bit of a vibe. You you get a negative vibe off them as a result, or they didn't understand it. And um, just, yeah. academics aren't the best of social awareness and and, and having a you know being <laughs> aware of their own behaviour within a particular social construct. At the best of times. So, mm. I mean, I've been there. Indeed. I've had I've had those those questions where you're like, on one hand, oh, I should probably try and answer this intelligently. I have about 10 seconds to come up with an answer. And also, oh, I hate this person. I hope they get in the sea and I never see them again. Um, <laughs> I actually had that happen at one of my, one of my first FDGs. The first FDG off the boat uh, in which, you know, there I am fairly new grad student, I'm doing my presentation. And I got this question that was basically, you know, why is your research so flawed? And oh God. <laughs> it wasn't, you know, it was, it was not said that way. That's just what they meant. And so <laughs> I tried to come up with an answer on the fly. I thought I did pretty well. And my advisor after my talk was like, wow, that person really, you know, kind of, kind of nailed you with that question. And you, you didn't answer it very well. You should, which talk about, um, thanks for that support. Anyway, they're like, so my advisor was like, you should go find them and ask them to have lunch, like have lunch with them. So you can talk about it more and maybe get some more insight. So your research will be stronger. And so I went up to them and I asked if, um, you know, Hey, uh, I really appreciated your question. I'd love to talk to you about it more. Would you like to, you know, have lunch? And they were like, no, that's okay. And walked yeah. off. And that person is now my colleague, which I love to bring up to him all the time because <laughs> uh, he doesn't remember that at all. <laughs> oh my God. But oh. he's actually the one that suggested I apply for the job that I have now. So there's that too. You never know. Some people, sometimes yeah. people just have bad days. It, it's, it, it's, it's also a bit of a weird, like, old man's club if you will, that an awful lot, I think there's a bit of hazing that goes on, particularly with when you're a a candidate in grad school or whatever, where it's, Mm -hmm. it's sort of, can they see if you can survive it after which it's like, congratulations, you got the degree. You're one of us now. And I've, I've (laughs) experienced that with a couple of people who it was funny because the, you know, some of them had asked particularly pointed questions or, um, maybe perhaps looked upon my work, not that, not particularly favorably and sort of, I'm, I'm coming up with a hit list. You know, it's like you're gonna get it one day, and see, see you, you're gonna get it too, and then yeah, you're gonna get. It. And then afterwards, like a year later, they're like, "Oh, good to see you. How's things? Like, congratulations on passing your viva." And you're like, "Okay, Wait. maybe we need to rub you off the hit list." I don't. Uh, <laughs> they're all being very nice to me now. I don't understand this. Um, yeah, I, yes. I, I think myself, I, I, I became very conscious of that when asking questions of people. When it's like, I don't really maybe I don't get this work or I'm not. I'm more inclined to give them what I think might be, particularly if I see someone getting those questions, I like to try and throw them a bone. Like Mm -hmm. give them a semi-interesting question that I know probably they've got an answer to. Yeah. Just to make them, and I I fully admit, I throw my hands up. I do do this to make people feel better because sometimes I'm watching, I'm watching like some grad school, kid i say they're like 24 25 or something <laughs> but they are dying on the stage and i'm like someone throw them a bone someone throw them a bone just give them give them an easy question or an easier question or one something they're going to get excited about rather than 
like yeah. all these people going, yes, did you see this work in 1976 that essentially <laughs> says that everything you're doing is fundamentally flawed and wrong? And they're like, no. No, no. Oh. Yeah, yes. I feel that. Ah, uh, but yeah, so we'll take a wee break in a second. But so you're, you're you see, like you said yourself, you're over at Georgia Tech, um, mm-hmm. teaching away. How's that going this year? Because we're what we're a month into the term. Oh God, it, how how does it move both so slowly and so quickly at the same time? <laughs> <laughs> I do not understand. Um, yeah, so the semester has been going pretty well. Um, I'm teaching a game design studio course, so that's been really fun. And we just get to really dig into what makes a game fun. What does fun even mean? Um, you know, we've talked a lot about player experience and different motivations that people have for playing and how to create games for those different motivations. So that's the, what we've been working on. Of this, how many games are the students like working on like one big project over this over like the semester, or do they do like a couple of different things? Or so I do. I do a lot of experimenting with my pedagogy. So I've been trying out co-creating syllabi, which is where you come in without a fully filled out syllabus, and you actually work with the students to fill it in. And so one of the things that they wanted to do was to get experience making more than one game. So we're doing two projects and a final project. And um, for the final project, they can choose either one of the two previous projects to flesh it out. Like, so. that, that sounds terrifying to me uh, <laughs> as, as someone. But also, I think I don't know whether the, 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 the rules or the regulations are different, but I find the idea that like, going in with the syllabus unformed like not fully formed like that like i can't i don't even know if we can get away with that here in the uk but also like that seems pretty hardcore that you're pretty confident to do that i'm assuming that it's then it's very rare that what the students ask for is goes beyond like you have like some established idea of like all the things that you could cover in the class so it's not like you're then going okay i need to go and prepare like two weeks material on this subject well so I've done that. This is my second semester doing this. And what I have found so far is that generally the topics that the students come up with are more or less in line with what I'd already planned to cover. But every time they throw at least there's like one curveball. And so this semester, they really wanted to learn game engines. And because because we don't have a game engines class. And I'm like, I'm not going to teach game engines in this class. So I've made it, I changed the um, the projects. So there was going to be a paper prototyping project. And now instead it's more about learning a game engine. And so I've kind of pushed it back on them a little bit because first of all, they don't all want to learn the same game engine. So choose a game engine. And then I've kind of structured the assignments such that it facilitates them self-learning that game engine but that way i'm not in there lecturing about a game engine which sounds honestly completely dull to me um <laughs> I've, I've done it it's not it's not the most thrilling of of syllabus at times um particularly yeah. also like i've done i i did it where it's like 
one like two semesters we taught unity and then for another semester we taught unreal or something and half of it is like Mm -hmm. here's how the thing that you do in unity you can make it work in unreal um yeah which so rather rather than being feature oriented or like design oriented or or like you know teaching ai for example then it's all right let's talk about ai tools in these engines and pros and cons and whatever versus here's how to write a blueprint here's how to interface (laughs) the c++ with the blueprint right but see, that's what they're looking for. And yeah. I'm like, you know what? The internet exists for a reason. And part of making somebody a lifelong learner is teaching them how to teach themselves. So it just becomes kind of part of what we do. Well, for those of you who are currently in Professor Ann Sullivan's class, we hope that you're having a good time. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Your thoughts and feedback on it at branchingfactor.aiandgames.com. Let us know how it's going. <laughs> <laughs> I'd actually love if some of your your students actually reached out and then we got we got anonymous questions to send in for a future episode. <laughs> they 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 actually follow some of them follow my Twitter and when I tweeted about this, I got messages in, in the class Discord like, "What? You're on a podcast?" <laughs> oh no! So um, who knows? Right, but we'll need to make sure we get this episode out before the end of the semester. Um, yes, but yeah. Uh, speaking of, we'll take a quick break before we get into, I think, what's going to be the big talking point for this episode. Of course, if you are one of the lovely people who supports all things AI and games and indeed the Branching Factor podcast on Patreon, you're not going to have a break right after this because this episode is ad-free. So we'll be back faster than you can say Monte Carlo Tree Search. Our work here on the Branching Factor podcast is made possible thanks to the good folks who support us on Patreon. As you might know, me, Tommy, the host here of the Branching Factor podcast, I run the AI and Games YouTube channel. I talk about how artificial intelligence works in video games and how AI research is empowered by the use of games. And AI and Games has been supported by our Patreon community for several years now. And it's thanks to them that we receive sponsorship that helps me and the team do more, including spending time with my friends right here on the Branching Factor podcast. Supporters on Patreon get access to a whole bunch of content for the Branching Factor podcast. You get to listen to episodes ad-free and even get to listen to them early before they go live to the wider world. Plus, you could submit questions to the team here on our Discord server, have your name read out in our producer credits, and even get bonus content that doesn't get published elsewhere. To find out how to join, head on over to patreon.com forward slash AI and games. That's Patreon. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash AI and games. And a special thanks to all of our patrons for their continued support of everything we're doing right here on Branching Factor. Yeah, I just heard George's the length of George's episode and I just assumed that was aspirational. Like, <laughs> oh, okay. We just need to talk. Great. Challenge accepted. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> yes, ladies and gentlemen, we are back. Uh, welcome to more of Branching Factor. We're here at episode four. And of course, with wonderful Anne Sullivan as the co-host for this episode. And actually, this gets us to the big talking point of this episode. I'll play the music in the background for everyone. Everyone's been coming in, talking about a particular thing that they're about their backgrounds or their interests or whatever it is that they do uh, in each and every episode. And I guess Anne. What, what have you brought to the table? What is it you wanted to talk about today? So I 
one of the things that inspired me was the fact that we do have a common history, except that it's reversed of each other. We've got the the yin yang <laughs> backgrounds over here, um, in which we've both been in game industry and in academia. And so I thought it might be fun to talk about the differences and similarities between academia and industry, because I know that comes up quite frequently. Um, at least when I'm talking to students, they care about this a lot. Yeah, like, so I think, uh, so I'm, I guess, like my career was that I, I did a little bit of <laughs> programming in, in the wild, um, not in games, actually, when I graduated, but I went all the way through grad school. I my To give you the very short version of mine, I was pretty much <laughs> straight into university, went to grad school, went all the way through, did a little bit of working. I was a programmer in the investment banking sector about 12 years ago, and then wow. I moved into academia. And then I ended up, that was how I got into games, more and more into games than I already was. I did a bunch of game stuff in grad school, but then now I'm sort of on the other side of it that I've left academia and now spend more time in the games industry. Your career has been the other way around. You started in games and now you're in academia, which isn't as common, I don't, or at least in my experience, it isn't as common. Um, coming back to what you were saying about your students, like how valuable, like... How do you think that impacts their perception of you and, and like your, I don't know, quote unquote credibility? Because I think that's also something that's a bit of an issue when you're teaching people of like, oh, they don't really know what they're talking about. When you tell them like your background and your experience, did it, does that then, do they clam up? <laughs> I don't know that they clam up, but uh, it definitely adds some credibility. And even, you know, I'm pretty open about the fact that it's been a hot minute since I've been in the game industry, but it's, you know, there's still things that you, that have not changed <laughs> from <laughs> industry. And I, I think it's, you know, that it, it, academia is not for everyone. Game industry is not for everyone, but there are definitely things that you can consider when you're thinking about which one you might want to work in. And having done both, it makes it easy to talk about those, which I'm sure you get as well. Yeah. Um, like what you say, like as is each of them has their, their pros and cons. Some things never change. Uh, and there is a certain, there's a certain skill set that you require in each of them. And even if you're, if you're moving from working in an industry to teaching something, teaching that same thing from that industry, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be good at, either no. um you know you could be very good at as a game programmer designer whatever and then you're terrible at teaching it conversely you could be very good at teaching it and terrible at dealing with the realities of working on in, in production you know right. um it, it, and i think also one of the things i dealt with which um I, i'll be interested to hear as we get into your story where that went but one of the things i struggled with was how as a someone once you've been in academia for too long you get a little scared that you can't get out that, or is my skill set <laughs> applicable anymore? Like the amount of people I speak to who are in our spaces, mutual friends of ours, who are like, I see that you've been busy doing all this other stuff. Good for you. Well done. I'm surprised that you managed to get out and everything's going great. I'm like, but not surprised because I didn't think you could do it, but just, oh, wow. Like, it's nice to see some of us can still do that. And I'm like, okay, great. Sure. And <laughs> trying not to. It's, freak it's out. interesting because I actually had the opposite fear, which was, you know, once you've been out of academia for too long, you can't get back in. So um, 
yeah, I mean, I can I can talk about. I, I titled it Anne's Bizarre Career Adventure. Yeah, where where do but, where do we start with this? I guess. <laughs> you did want me to start at the beginning. I did. So, um, <laughs> yeah. So I wanted to grow up to be a cat, and I'm still I'm still waiting. You know, we've got we're in the future now, and we've got self driving cars and all that. Great, whatever. But why can I not be a cat when I grow I'm, up? I'm I am surprised you don't have your cat ear headphones <laughs> on today. I mean, From- I I have. I've got multiple pairs and I can also modify. I mean, this is a podcast, I'm not so going to. critically yeah, for, like, for our audio listeners, this is lost, but. <laughs> um, and the heater's on, so Zoe's asleep in front of the heater, so she's not joining me today. Um, but at some point I had to face the reality I couldn't be a cat. And so I actually wanted to be a wildlife conservationist for most of my child life. And that's what I went to college for. That's what I thought I went to college for. So hang on, yeah. So what is is it? So that be your undergraduate <laughs> then? What 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 is your original degree in? So I'm learning, right. I'm learning so much this right is, now. This is this so is, exciting. Yeah, this is where we learn that one, Anne has ADHD. Two, Anne had no plan whatsoever. And apparently I also like to talk about myself in the third person. All right. So (laughs) I wanted to be a wildlife conservationist. And so when I applied for colleges, that was, those were the programs I was looking for. However, the school I ended up going to, which was UC Santa Cruz, uh, University of California, Santa Cruz, they didn't have a wildlife conservation program. It was wildland conservation. And I had misread it. Oh no, that's a very different (laughs) thing. It's very different. I wanted to work with wolves specifically, and instead, (laughs) they're interested in plants. So I ended up going into general biology, which requires one heck of a lot of um, memorization. And also just there was a very memorable hands-on lab in which... We were doing dissections and um, anyway, yeah, I won't go into details, but I'll just say when you're the first lab, sometimes the uh, anesthesia hasn't totally kicked in. All right. Oh, no. <clears throat> oh, yeah. No, I'm, 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 I'm totally on board with, with the subsequent career change that I think is about to come in this story. <laughs> yeah. So at the same time, like I had been programming for fun since I was at least eight years old. Like my earliest memory is actually playing. This is, I'm going to age myself here. Uh, But my earliest memory is playing a game on like the Magnavox Odyssey 2. Wow. One of the Casey Munchkin games. Anyway, but I had just very distinct memories of playing games growing up, programming. I played all of the Sierra games. Uh, I taught myself how to, you know, how to program in basic and do graphics and animations and whatnot, music. And so at the same time, UC Santa Cruz had this requirement that you had to learn, uh, you had to take a computer class. So this was the early 1990s. Um, And their computer classes were things like, this is called a monitor. This is called a mouse. This is how you use the mouse. And I was working in the computer labs. Like that was my my part-time job during school. And I'm just, I did not want to take that class. So I found out that there were programming classes offered. And so I took one and I loved it. 
And um, that, like the first year, my third quarter, I failed my bio class because I couldn't memorize for shit. And I also was like aced my programming class. And so over the summer, I did some, you know, a little soul searching because on one hand, I felt very guilty that I was abandoning the wolves, but <laughs> also uh, just was not gelling well with this program. Yeah. And I looked into the programming um, as a, a field and I, I actually had no idea that programming was a job that you could have because, All right. you know, they didn't tell girls that in the 90s. Mm. And I'm not even, you know, I'm not even sure it was just they didn't tell girls. It just wasn't a big thing in the 90s. But by the time I got out in 96, like programming was, you know, you had your choice of jobs. And so I worked for um, a small like consulting company and, you know, we just did programming for other people. And on the side, I was working on games with some friends and like, you know, never got published or anything, but um so, 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 so the other thing was this is the, students always ask me how I get in the game industry. And I'm like, well, you cannot take my path. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> I said, so I see the exact same thing. <laughs> this was early on in internet history. Like one of my first jobs as a computer, like working in a uh, computer industry was actually working on web pages. And so I put my resume on the web, uh, like on the internet. And someone at Electronic Arts who was looking for sign-on bonus, like you get bonuses when you got people hired, uh, found my resume by searching for it probably. That's on, nuts. Oh, yeah. Can you imagine? <laughs> <laughs> like they just searched for game and resume and mine was like one of five that showed up. Oh my God. And it's because I had been making that game with my friends and I put it on my, I put it on my resume. And so I ended up, you know, I interviewed all that. I got the job. And so I worked at EA Seattle back when they existed. Of course they exist again, but it's a different studio. Yeah. Uh, and I worked on the FIFA and Need for Speed series. Which I, um, I've, I, I didn't know this, I think, until a couple of years after we'd first met. And then you just, I think you just casually mentioned it one day. Like I didn't know about Need for Speed until you started writing all this down in preparation for this episode, but you just said you'd worked <laughs> on FIFA. And I'm like, you worked on FIFA? What the fuck? <laughs> Um, also just like you can already hear like there's the entire uh, well I was going to say every part of our audience that isn't based in the continental United States is like she worked on FIFA Anne's great we like Anne get more of Anne on the show she worked on FIFA like you have no idea how much your credibility goes up outside of the US when you tell people that you worked on FIFA. It's absolutely nuts to me but yeah so like, like whereas, whereas in the US I always say yeah I worked on FIFA you know, soccer. <laughs> you know that game that's 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 like that is it's the game that everybody who doesn't live in the US buys instead of Madden, you know? Right, exactly. Oh god, man. Anyway. Yeah, so I did that for a while. Um and then the you know there was the whole technology sector just kind of crumbling and EA ended up closing down EA Seattle. And so yeah, I got laid off with been? everybody else. Uh, that was 2002, 2003-ish. Okay. Yeah. So this was also, as I found out later, I actually had no idea because, again, the internet was very new back then and information was not as easily found that this was during the EA spouse um, 
era. Yeah. And so one of the things that happened near the end of my time there is, so I I describe working at EA as my dream job and my nightmare job. Mm. And there was a definite shift when we got this new manager and that just completely changed everything. So, you know, it went from a lot of just being able to be passionate about what you're working with to it's just micromanaging and also, oh, you can work whatever hours you want, but there's also a mandatory 9 a.m. meeting every day. Mm. And of course, there's no zooming in at those at that time. Um, they also started doing mandatory seven day work weeks. So you'd have to get permission to take a day off over the weekend, like manager approved time off. And they also did um, like nobody worked eight hours a day, like 10 hours is what was considered kind of baseline. And if you worked past, I think it was 7 p.m., then they'd order dinner for you. So it just was not a very healthy working environment by the end. Yeah. And so, you know, it, that's why they got sued. So I, I like to think it's not like that anymore. However, after that was done, I actually went back to California because I was up in Seattle at the time and I left off stock options for a few years and I went back to school. So I actually took a bunch of classes on um, photography, graphic design, illustration, um, like all these art classes, anything that had the word design in it, I wanted to take it. So interior design, fashion design, I took all these classes at like the local community college. And then at some point I was like, all right, I actually, you know, need to get back into the workforce. So like, like how did, how did that occur? Cause like, so you're jumping from much more very programming, very logic intensive to these more art creative endeavors, which funnily enough, I can now see you, I can kind of now see like the intersection of like all points of Anne come from what this kind of period <laughs> of like these two different things, but like mm-hmm. what led to that? pivot i guess from so i've been programming over to creative yeah i i'd been doing art my whole life like as a kid but you know um like my family was homeless at one point like money was always very tight and so art was not considered a potential career because there's no financial stability in it so (laughs) so no this is just resonating very hard with me in in my own childhood right now this is wow okay (laughs) No, yeah, continue. so I I was constantly like I taught myself Photoshop and um you know as an undergrad and I took all of the all the graphics programming classes I could basically just always kind of going between and even when I was at EA I'd often be kind of the mediator between the programming team and the art team like unofficially but because I could speak both languages to some degree yeah. and then. Uh, you know, I'd been doing the programming thing for almost a decade at that point. And so there was just like the part of me that just wanted to do art kind of needed to be fulfilled. And so that's why I took all these classes, but I still had that, you know, that voice in the back of my head, like you can't make a living at art. And so I decided I would, <laughs> I decided I'd go back to grad school because at this point I hadn't been programming 
for close to five years. I was doing kind of stuff on the side. I was doing graphic design. Um, I was doing some web dev, mostly front end. And um, I was also doing IT work, funny enough, for different educational, um, like Cal Poly University, UC Santa Barbara. Um, anyway, I, I did IT work, which is not my favorite. But I decided like, okay, I want to, I, I want to get back into programming. It's been a while. I'm going to go back to school for it. But, you know, I have an undergraduate degree in computer science. You asked me ages ago, that's what my degree is in computer science. So I'll just go back and maybe get a master's or a PhD in computer science. And so I reached out to one of my, um, one of my professors from undergraduate and said, hey, I'm thinking about going to grad school. And he said, come visit. I'll have you meet some people. So I <laughs> drove up there. I was living about three hours away. And I drove up to Santa Cruz. And he that professor introduced me to Jim Whitehead, who is the person that is basically in charge of Foundations of Digital Games now. Yeah. I don't think he was at the time. But... We had like this hour long chat just talking about stuff, but he was started like he was working on starting a games program at UC Santa Cruz. And so he was really interested in my background, having been in games and like, what do people actually want in the industry? Like what programming languages do they use, et cetera, et cetera. And that's also, I think, funnily enough, you tend to find that this, I guess, even like only in the last maybe five to ten years we've actually reached a point where that knowledge is actually a bit more pervasive like yes then it's like what, what do people use in the games industry what are the tools and technologies they're using we don't know because there's always been that <laughs> kind of secretive element of it that you know am yeah, I, even, I mean it's all proprietary yeah you're using proprietary engines you're uh, maybe you've learned to write in the one of the two language three languages they might use yes you don't know yeah yeah, at the time it was like, you know, C++ and that's, that would get you pretty much anywhere. Um, so in talking to Jim, I mentioned, I was thinking of going back to grad school. This was in like January, February timeframe. I hadn't taken GRE. I honestly, like, if I talked to PhD students now and I said, I went to get my PhD because I wanted to become a better programmer. They're like, what? WTF? Like, <laughs> that is not what you get a PhD for. Well, I come from a family that nobody went to college, so I had no clue what a PhD was. I just assumed it was like undergrad plus plus, right? Like, you just learned some more stuff. Mm. No idea what research was. And that summer, Jim reached out to me and was like, hey, are you still considering coming to grad school? And I said, yeah, I'm signed up to take the GRE this fall. And I was planning to uh, apply this next cycle. And he's like, well, what if we opened up the admissions for about two hours um, tomorrow and <laughs> okay. put your stuff in? And I'm like, oh, okay. So <laughs> I had my statement of purpose and all that stuff was not very good. As you can imagine, I didn't know what I was doing. I just threw things together. I yeah. had like my community college professors as my like letters of reference and uh, then, you know, congratulations, you're accepted to the PhD program. And so that's how I got into grad school. That's nuts. <laughs> it's so nuts. Um, so yeah, I went to grad school, 
ended up meeting Michael Matias, who is one of the people that created Facade and a lot of the, um, I mean, one of the major AI academic folks. Yeah. And he became my advisor. And I found out what research was. Um, <laughs> fast forward many, many years. By the time I graduated, uh, I wanted nothing to do with games research. <laughs> <laughs> and so I did a startup in which we were creating playful design tools for crafters. And so we, I did that for three years. We had some angel, um, we had an angel investor. None of us were very good at asking for money. And so that turned out to not work very well. And I, I know, I know that, I know that one. That's, that's not like, oh, hey, I'm doing this creative endeavor. And then it's like, well, you need to find funding for it. Like, ah, can I not just uh, go and, do I? Can I not just focus on making the thing? Um, can I just, can I just give this away to people? Like, uh, so and so then, yeah. on <laughs> <laughs> So at that point, uh, after those three years, I was like, man, if I'm going to get back into academia, this is my only chance. And I really missed research. So it turned out like research was the secret sauce for me. Uh, it really allowed me to take that artistic side, the programmatic analytic side, and really find a comfortable uh, place in between. And so I ended up getting a job um, as an assistant professor, ended up at Georgia Tech after a little bit. And now I'm here and I'm very happy here. Well, as you said, I don't think it's a career path. I don't think it's, <laughs> it's a difficult career path to follow um, <laughs> in many regards, but also like, you know what? It's interesting hearing this for the first time because I've only really heard it from, I've heard the bit about EA and then I heard pretty much grad school and professorship. Like I've never heard the rest of this. But it's it's interesting, I think, because we come from similar backgrounds of neither of us. We had family who'd went to college. We didn't have frames of reference. Your mm -hmm. story about getting into grad school just really hit me in, a, in this. And it's like, oh, my God, this is very similar to my own story of, I don't know what I'm doing, but somebody suggested I should do this. And it sounds like a good idea. Here we go. <laughs> yes. um, what, and then, like, you know, what happens at the end of it? Explaining to my parents, well, they'll get to call me doctor afterwards. Like, <laughs> no. And there's three years in between. I don't really know what takes place there. But um, yeah, that's, that's yeah. I I find it interesting as well because you've got this. It's it's letting you tap into both your creative side and your kind of more programmatic skill set as well. Your programming skill set, which it's funny because I think even ten years ago there wasn't a space outside of academia for that sort of thing. And even then, I don't know how much space outside of academia there is for a lot of the sort of stuff that you do now. I guess. Oh gosh, yeah, the stuff I do now. So one of the things I found through, you know, doing this game with my friends, through working at EA and through the startup, is that for me, I really don't like worrying about market. So I don't want to have to worry about the thing I'm making. Is it marketable? Like I just want to experiment and try weird things, especially because my interests are so varied, and I'm constantly looking for connections between things that seem very disconnected like that's my favorite play space um so you know a lot of the experimental games i've been working with tend to fall in that that area and i don't really care if 
it would sell well. And I don't have to care if it sells well. That, and so that's that's great for me. Yeah. And that's strangely kind of antithetical to like what you said. You worked for you worked on FIFA and you worked on Need for Speed, which FIFA is continues to be like one of the most dominant franchises in the industry. And Need for Speed is mm-hmm. also similarly, you know, it's not of the, the size of FIFA, but it's still fairly so talking about motivation, actually, like how difficult is it to be motivated on those sorts of things? Because you don't think you're a street racer. And of course, I don't think you have much of an interest in soccer or, you know, football, as we call it everywhere else. Like that, oh, is, that, was, that is something when you talked about it before, I always thought was really interesting. Like, how do you get motivated to go and work on a football game if predominantly if you're based in the US? And this is also soccer as it was didn't really become a thing in the u.s as far as i know until you hosted it in 1994 so like prior to then there wasn't really that much enthusiasm for the sport like how did, how did that feel yeah. for you? well and it's funny because now i live in atlanta and you know i see their flags for atlanta united everywhere like i've never lived somewhere that was so into their their football team or the soccer team uh and so it's cool but no you're right like when i soccer was actually one of the few sports i really enjoyed playing in school though and so i didn't go into it being like Ugh, soccer it was more <laughs> like wow i don't know very much about soccer and you know whenever i test my code i would constantly like the only goals i could ever get were the ones against my own team because I could never remember which side I was supposed to be going towards. <laughs> anyway, so I'm really bad at it. I'm very bad at FIFA. But at the same time, like there, there was such a culture around it there. Uh, like we had in our conference room, we had a TV that had satellites, so we could watch, we could watch the the matches. And so we often would. And so I actually, you know, really enjoyed watching it. I never got that into it, but actually by far the worst part of working on those games is just having to hear the song, whatever song is the intro. Like <laughs> I think the year I worked on it, there was, I worked on two of them. One was tub thumping and oh one was God, a, no. a Moby song. Holy crap. Like the, the thousand, the thousandth time you've heard that song, you're just like, I just want to drill into my brain. Um, like I just hear it in my sleep. So that was actually the worst part. But what it comes down to is in the end, it's it wasn't much different from programming for my web dev stuff. You know, like one of the one of the game, the Need for Speed game I worked on, which we actually put in an Easter egg uh that I don't think anybody ever found, was um like I worked on the UI. And so like it was very much like working on web dev. It's just the okay. The text was different. The graphics was different. Um, you know, there was obviously some cachet to being like, yeah, I work in the games industry. And my grandma, bless her heart, every time she'd go to like Costco or some store that had games, she'd always make sure like the games I worked on were on top of the pile. <laughs> like, how sweet is that? Um, so in the end, like, it just, it didn't you know, when you test your code, it's a little more fun. But the coding mm. itself is such similar concepts that, um, I don't know. It was like everything else except the job that was the cool part. 
quick break from all the banter to take a moment to thank our patrons who support us here on the Branching Factor podcast. Without that support, we wouldn't have kicked off this fun new venture for us all to take part in. Don't forget that by supporting us on Patreon, you get to listen to each episode early and without all these pesky ads that break up the flow. Plus, you get bonus content and the chance to submit questions to us directly via the AI and Games Discord server and shoutouts for our top tier patrons. It's all part of the package. To find out how to join, head on over to patreon.com forward slash AI and Games. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash AI and Games. Thanks once again for listening to us here on Branching Factor. And with that, let's get back to the actual podcast. Like what you were, you know, everything other than the programming itself, <laughs> I mm. should say. <clears throat> I do like the idea of someone like your grandmother just going up and always making sure. Like, I think it <laughs> is, like, it's not something I've experienced because everything, all the games I've worked on thus far are, or digital releases, but yeah, like the idea of what there's a tangible thing on a shelf somewhere, which even then there's a dying concept yeah. in this industry of like, hey, look yeah, at this um, thing that's on a shelf. You, you know, my granddaughter worked on that. Like that's that's pretty dope. I like that. Yep. And yeah. straight put all the FIFAs at the top, um, which you wouldn't have to worry about if you were in the UK, because of course it would be at the front. <laughs> um, yes, but it, it's. I mean, it turned out like, you know. I remember like Heroes of Might and Magic came out. I, I don't remember what generation, but like I stayed up really late working on it and I missed the morning meeting. Well, guess what? You still get in trouble for staying up all night playing games, even when you work in a games <laughs> position. So <laughs> it's, I, you know, um, but for me, the, the problem, like the frustration I often had was just that I was making somebody else's vision. I never got to play around with the design because the designers are a very different position, right? Like um, at least at that time, a lot of the designers would come out of QA, which was interesting. Um, so it wasn't like, there, was, there wasn't a way for you to exchange or provide. No, there's no pathway. <clears throat> yeah. Th- like nobody had a pathway from going from programmer to designer, but also, you know, EA is, very much about creating the next iteration. <laughs> um, and, you know, every time we would try to do not the next iteration, I feel like we were market, we were punished either by the company or the market. Um, but I, <laughs> one of the games that I worked on was so frustrating, Tommy. Uh, <laughs> it, it was... <laughs> because all of us working on it knew it was a terrible idea, but we had no say in the design. And so they just didn't listen to us. So they created, I doubt anybody has heard of this. It's called Motor City Online. And it's a Need for Speed game that was a massively multiplayer online game. And I'm like, if you look at the Venn diagram of people that play massively multiplayer online games and the people who play racing games, there's not a lot of overlap there. But then they decided, you know what we should do is we should make it classic cars. <laughs> and then you're like racing for pink slips and souping up your like 50s, 60s, 70s, like 50s and 60s cars. And I'm like, okay, now those those circles don't overlap at all. Like there's maybe six people that want a massively multiplayer online version of this game. I, I have just had... I have, I have just had like a horrible, like, not horrible, but just like massive 
oh my god moment because <laughs> I had to look this game up because I'm like I don't remember this and then because it, it only came out on on Windows um, mm-hmm. I just saw the box art and I just had like flashbacks to when I was like 17, 18 years old because this came <laughs> out when I was in my freshman year of college and I remember mm-hmm. the box art I just was like I looked at it like oh my god <laughs> I remember Such- this game um, never played it. I just remember seeing it on store shelves yeah. back when we used to have PC games on store shelves in big boxes and stuff. Yes. Right. Yes. When the oh box art God. was super important, it was so demoralizing to work on that. Um, and at the same time, like, I hope I don't get sued by EA for saying all these stories because this is, <laughs> I should say, like, well, I did, I worked on Motor City Online, but I actually begged my manager to get off that project and put on another project. Um, and so they took me off the credits, which was fine. <laughs> but the um, the game I ended up working on, which was a new game, ended up getting canceled. And that's actually when they shut down the the oh. studio. But at the same time, like SSX, um, the that snowboarding game. So EA Seattle at the time was part of EA Canada, weirdly. Like we were an offshoot of that mega branch. And so... <laughs> The, the scuttlebutt that we heard was that the SSX team, the people who worked on it, they had pitched it and they had been turned down. And then they just worked on it anyway. Huh. And then they just went, they went to, you know, whoever, the directors or whatever, and said, hey, look, we made this game. It's super fun. And like SSX became one of the first foundational games of EA Big back when that was a thing. And kind of as a like again this is scuttlebutt i have not (laughs) caveat 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 um my understanding is that they were upset that the team had done this and so they broke them up so ssx continued Uh. it was you know very popular at the time and like so fun like we were playing it for fun like we were playing it in our office just for fun because it was just and, such and a great game. Yeah, that's a huge sign as well. Like I've I've seen that as well in, in other companies when you're playing the game that you're making. Yes. That, like in the off hours, like you know this is good. Versus yes. other times when you're making the game and then it's like, all right, I'm going home. Like I don't have time for a, another round of this or yeah. whatever. But and those are good games, those SXX games. Yeah. So, you know, I was I was pretty burnt out on the whole industry thing by the time we all got laid off. So um, I think that's another reason why I was just like, oh, I'm going to go do something completely different now. Thank you very much. <laughs> I guess like what I think is really interesting here, you're talking about like, you know, the, how much control or how much, uh, ins- or how much like opportunity you have to direct the thing that you're making. And also, as you said there, you're not particularly interested in the market. How does that then work nowadays when, you're in academia where you've still got diff- you've got a different set of rules you've got to play against of, well, we've got to produce research and we've got to publish it and it's got to go to these venues and it's got to be peer reviewed and it's got to sound like it has some basis of scientific acumen in it. But you're also like, <laughs> I just want to make the cool thing because making the cool thing is cool, you know? Because that's always something that I struggled with as an academic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that is that is true. So I feel like... I mean, there's always trade-offs um, and I can go into this a little bit more in detail, but if for me, 
I find academia to be really comfortable. Um, yes, I need to publish, but I feel like I've, strangely enough, like I have found the communities that welcome the weird shit that I do. And so, I mean, not always <laughs> for sure. Like I, I just had a paper rejected and I was like, what the hell y'all, but it's fine. <laughs> um, <laughs> I just, I just turned it around and sent it to, you know, Antonio's that, workshop. That's the way to do it. That's the way to do it. You just, yes. Give it a bit of a spit polish and then send it off somewhere else. <laughs> yeah. It's like, okay, let's go try something else entirely. Um, and that's, that's the thing. Like there's so many different avenues and because I do take different fields and, and like I, I do field bashing, like kit bashing, but with different fields, different <laughs> academic fields. Like there's often, you know, the, the main fields that I draw from, like there's conferences there, there's conferences that might have some overlap. And so I tend to have a lot of options when I am trying to publish something. Um, and I'm not always totally clear with what I'm doing, whether it's research or not, or just me like being like, I don't know, this sounds interesting. Let's try it. Um, but I guess I've learned the game enough to make it sound like it is. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, this is always good. A part of always, it's funny talking to PhD students in particular. It's like the story of what your research about is about is usually completely different at the end of it versus what it was at the start. You come in with some idea oh, of what it was and then it's like you retcon it yes. by the time you get I, to the end it's like you retell that narrative in a way that makes more sense to you in your own head yeah you backfill the uh the theory mm. um at least i did very much like, I did sorry quite sorry times. janet <laughs> <laughs> yeah certainly my own phd i think it was like the first half of what this is what it's all about and then i got to like the last couple of months of what this is what it's all about and i remember I actually raised it with my my PhD supervisor John uh, Levine, and I was like, I feel like I'm just kind of like we set out to do one thing. I ended up doing something else that didn't quite work out to be the thing we wanted, and now I'm kind of bullshitting my way to justify that what I did is actually kind of still what I wanted to do. And he's like, Yeah, you're writing your thesis. It's fine. Yeah, that's what you do. That's what you do. Um, yeah, no. The, so research is a wicked problem, right? So you the question changes as you start answering things. So yeah. it's totally normal for that to happen. Like you start out with one question and then you try to go answer it. And it's like, oh, well, I answered this thing, but that actually changes what I was looking at. Like the changes kind of what I want to look at and why I want to look at it. And so it's absolutely normal to go back and just yeah. retcon. The more you learn about the question you're asking, the more you realize it was the wrong question to ask. Yes. <laughs> and the, so you yes. come to the end of it with a much better question. But then, yeah, there's this whole identity mm -hmm. crisis of like, I'm cheating. I, I failed because I it feels like cheating. But at the same time, like, because, you know, I tell my students the research question is a living document. It's meant to change over time. And so that whole process of you know, thinking about things and it maybe doesn't work and you try something else and it does, or maybe you change tracks entirely. Like that is all research. It all counts. Yeah. <clears throat> it's not cheating. The problem is like when you start knowing something, it's very difficult to remember what it was like when you didn't know it. And it's also very easy to minimize what you know. So uh, I have problems. I had trouble with this throughout my PhD in which 
you know, I'd be talking to Michael Matias, my advisor, and I'd be like, oh yeah, um, like I looked into this and I, I, you know, I kind of did this thing, but it, you know, whatever. And he'd be like, I'm sorry, what? Like you can write an entire paper about that thing that you just blew off. And it's just very common yeah. because, you know, if I know it, so it must be easy. And it's like, no, you might actually be the only person in the world that knows that thing. Like I remember, so I remember like when I did my thesis, I didn't really know what procedural content generation was, or at least in the context of like a research <laughs> yes. field. And then like one mm -hmm. of the things I did was I actually wrote a procedural generator during my PhD, but I slapped it together in the space of two weeks to facilitate a larger research problem I was trying to solve. And I'm like, I made this mm -hmm. thing and whatever. And then like years later, I'm telling this, com I'm in a conversation with someone like, did you write a paper about this? I'm like, no, no, no. It was just something I slapped together for the purposes of the paper. And they're like, you should have wrote a paper yeah. about this. I actually wrote like a, if you've ever done AI planning, um, I essentially wrote a game generation engine that took a PDDL definition of a problem and then actually gener could generate multiple different permutations of that PDDL definition as different playable games. Wow. Which, yeah, it sounds really cool. It's like there, it sounds really cool when it's like, oh, wow, you should have done that. But at the time, I'm just like, oh, no, it's just a thing I'm slapping together for the purposes of the PhD because it needs done. And then, yes. And then years later, like, oh my God, that could have, that could have been another paper. And that's. <laughs> So dumb. Yeah. Um, when, uh, so for my PhD project, which also morphed a hell of a lot, one of the things I ended up doing was, and I should probably go into more detail, but I ended up making it generate different endings based on like the, the game state. And I will talk about that a lot more, but you know, it just generated endings, whatever. I just, I didn't want to have to write them all. <laughs> all the different permutations so I, I had to generate it and you know that was like a line and michael was like i'm sorry it does what <laughs> like which particularly also given the overlap with some of the work he was doing on on the likes <laughs> of facade and what have you like yeah I yes um actually this is so funny because it's a it's a opportunity for me to shamelessly plug that you I made an entire video for anyone interested about facade. It's this, you know, entire like AI drama management system, which a lot of people know from like Twitch Let's Plays these days. But I made an entire video about it on AI and games, which was very. It's one of my most popular videos ever now, actually. Oh, interesting. Like, yeah. So my research came out of drama management. That's where I started. I, I need to look. Are you made... I'm I'm looking up. Um, it, it's something like my, yeah, it's, oh God, it's been out for a couple of years now. I think it is now something like, like my fifth or sixth most popular video I've ever made. It's crazy. Um, yeah. So just click the link right there yep. and <laughs> wherever it ends up and go watch it um, in the podcast that you're listening to. Click the link. Click the link on the podcast. There you go. This is great audio content. We're doing a great job. Yeah. We're really good at this. <sighs> you'd, th you'd think we'd never done it before. They should hire us. <laughs> we don't care about the market. We just want to make the content. That's all it's about. I just want financial stability. I don't want to make things that sell. <laughs> Please. That's enough. Can I just make enough? Just enough to pay the bills. That's all I'm after. Yes. Um, yeah. I think there was, I'm trying to remember, but wasn't one of the audience questions about the PhD project? Yeah. So funnily enough, this was actually a question that Mike uh, Cook, or one of our other co-hosts, uh. at what point? did you realize that 
there's an intersection between you know game design and, and like research uh no that i found that out in like the second year of my phd <laughs> <laughs> so when i started at uc santa cruz there was no games program and so i was doing uh computer graphics and actually my sadly my most cited paper is this project uh, this class project which we we tried the the dumb approach and it worked super well and so the professor was like i was really hoping you'd have to do something smarter but you really need to publish this so what we were working on was doing hand how to do long um like photographs with a digital camera over time but handheld. So, you know, like I said, I did a lot of photography. And so I would do tons of like when you want to take pictures of waterfalls and stuff, you take these long exposures. So mm. it's you get the like the pretty those pretty effects with the water moving over time. But you know, you do it handheld and it's a huge mess. But with the digital camera, it's much easier to do. Uh and so basically what we do is we just take you know, a bunch of images over a short amount of time, and then you average them together and voila, you know, you have to line them up, of course, but then you average it together and you've got a long exposure that's quite crisp, even though it's handheld. And so we published it at Eurographics and I think it's like they use something close to that in most digital cameras these days. Um, I mean, we haven't patented it or anything, but it's just like here's the dumb approach to this thing uh and it works cool so the second year that's when michael matias started and that was the first time i'd ever talked to somebody who had done games research and i was really interested in narrative specifically because i'd mostly played role-playing games both tabletop and computer role-playing games and in particular just you know the constant question when it comes to narrative like why can't we make narratives that are more adaptive to the player and what they do and so that's how I got into drama management work which still felt like it it wasn't going the direction I wanted it to and so I started looking at quest generation in particular because it felt like I was playing a lot of World of Warcraft at the time and it felt like quests were really dull and not related to the story at all in general it was like tangentially related yeah uh, i you know i remember being really frustrated when i played a druid that it's like oh there's this overpopulation problem with the cats like you go kill some of the cats it's like one that doesn't solve the problem <laughs> two why am i like why are, hate that rpgs make you kill wolves and big cats all the time, like especially wolves. <laughs> this is going all the way back to the start of this conversation. Yes, you can like, imagine how, you? how that might be frustrating. <laughs> I'm like, quit being lazy. Anyway, um, wolves aren't the enemy. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I'm a druid. Why can't I like, I don't know, talk to the leader cat or something and work out a thing or do some sort of like trap and trap spay and release program or something like give me some options why do i have to kill cats and so i set out to make quest generation systems that would have 
the ability to let you fulfill the quests in basically whatever way you wanted is so instead of it being like yes you've killed 10 things instead it's like here's the problem when that problem is solved through some mechanics in the game then that quest is fulfilled um and because i didn't want to do combat it ended up being mostly talking stuff <laughs> like as you can imagine like there's only so much you can do in games and a lot of times in RPGs, your choices are killing shit, talking to things, people, whatever, or picking up stuff, right? Like, those are kind of... Yeah, I the, won't the get trinity in. of interaction the, the trinity. in role-playing role games. <laughs> yeah, it's somewhat limited. And I was playing a lot of tabletop role-playing games at the time, too. And so that was another frustration. And so I ended up moving more towards this being able to talk and build relationships with the characters and so uh were, are you familiar with prom week did you ever hear about yeah, that yeah yeah um, okay we were just we were just talking about that in mike's episode about how that was one okay. of the high profile games research yes. projects of that era that kind of it yes. was it was a research project and it was a game that wasn't yes. a crappy little thing that somebody threw together for the purposes of the paper it was like a game that you could actually play and it was interesting and fun um, so I took their engine and completely bastardized it to make it work <laughs> with an RPG. So I added stuff about, you know, items, really focusing. So one of the things Prom Week does, for those who are not familiar with it, is it it models relationships between characters in a much more nuanced way than just here's a friendship stat. You know, they're looking at I mean, I think I ended up with four different relationship stats, like familial relationship, romantic relationship, friendship. And uh, I forget what the other one was because it's been too long. But there's also, you know, statuses that are either on or, on or off. The relationships are a spectrum. But, you know, a character could be angry or um, sad or whatever, which in retrospect really shouldn't be toggled. Those should also be spectrums. But I took that system and made it, turned it into the backbone of a game called Miss um, Manor, M I S M A N O R, <laughs> but it sounds like Miss Manor. Um, and so there's a bunch of characters that already have the relationships between each other. And then you as a player can come into the story and talking to players, you can do stuff with, um, uh, items as well but you can not only change your relationship with those characters and even other characters but you can change the relationships between characters as well so for instance um if like i could tell a secret and it might make somebody mad at the other person because it was you know something they didn't know but now they know about they know the secret about this other person and it yeah it's it's pissed them off so there's all this nuance going on and the story itself, I don't know, this feels, now I look back and it's just so cliched grad student story, but <laughs> uh, it's like H.P. Lovecraftian-esque in which it's set in like the 20s and you were invited to this dinner party, but you're actually supposed to, like, the reason you've been invited is you're the sacrifice to bring back the mother's spirit, right, of this family. And there's all of this backstory with all the different relationships and 
how you can change, you know, based on not only your relationships with the characters, but the relationships with the characters between each other affect not only what they'll tell you, but how they'll tell you, how they react to what you say. Um, and also uh, the endings, of course, is based on all of this stuff. And now you see why I had to generate endings because <laughs> this was complex as fuck. <laughs> but, you know, it could be that like you were able to convince the daughter that her mom was a bad person and you don't really want to bring her back or that you repair the relationship between the colonel who's the father and the daughter and they decide that they're enough for each other or you know you piss everyone off and they're like yeah let's kill this fucker um <laughs> so it it was this very complex thing and so by the end of it and there was so much going on and I had again no real clue about which parts were research and so in the end that could have I probably could have done 10 more papers out of this thing than I actually did but but at the same time PhD you're, project. you're just trying to get it out the door and that's, yes. that's often the thing it's you don't and of course oh go ahead and I, I think also comparatively like you don't really see like you said, like, oh, I could probably could have written another dozen papers. You're not really looking at your own work like that. You're just trying to get it out the door. And then years later, yes. you end up bumping into someone who's maybe they've just became a grad student or whatever. And they're like, oh, my God, I found this. I found this thing that you did. And ah, and it's so weird when they look at you, what your work, how important your work was to them in some capacity as part of their mm -hmm. research where you're like, oh, God, no, that's put that's held together by like you know, duct tape and broken dreams. Like this whole thing is just this nightmare <laughs> yes. that I threw together for, just so I could get that piece of paper. And yes, then... exactly. Like that project, you know, people are always like, oh my God, I want to play it. It's like, I mean, it well, sounds amazing. I, I want to play it. I would also like to play it, but it was written in Flash. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, sorry. <laughs> I don't even know where the code is anymore. Um, but yeah, it was like Python and Flash of all things. I, at some point, I mean, I would love to rewrite it in JavaScript, except that, you know, I have too many other new ideas that I want to try out. I don't want to go back. I just yeah. want it to exist. Have you have you had that, like, I want to remake my PhD and see if I can do it in, like, half the time and 10 times better? I've had that thought. Oh, God, yes. Several it's times. Constantly. Yeah. And I will say, like, one of the main focuses with my PhD is I'm like, I want to make a playable game that is enjoyable. So that was definitely on my radar and that's partly because i came from the game industry i'm like I, I you know i looked at all the academic games that were being made and i'm just like what is this bullshit so yeah i think i mean i definitely fall into that category i made a lot of games um during my phd that were i think were more fun for the ai to play than a human <laughs> yes. um certainly i think i think the i think the ai was enjoying it more than than any human was <laughs> that had to play against them um Definitely, it wasn't really a uh, entertainment. wasn't a priority. I think it's safe to say. Yes, my um, my feelings on uh, AI and games research, game AI research, that can be another episode. <laughs> Easily. <laughs> oh dear, but yeah. So I mean, I guess thinking about getting this to something of a conclusion. Where what are you doing now? What's the what's the things that are driving you? Oh man. So right now I'm actually applying for tenure. Am I allowed to say that? I guess whatever. Uh, and so <laughs> I am actually doing a lot of retrospection because I have to, one of the parts of tenure is you have to write up like 
this is what I do. This is who I am as a researcher. And it's been, it's been enlightening, but also a little frustrating because I don't know how to describe who I am as a researcher. I'm kind of all over the place. It's but... coming back to that whole retconning thing, isn't it? Like <laughs> yes. it's, it's the PhD thing, but they're just at a much larger scale of like, you know, also, I guess, critically, just for any of us, any of our non-American audience who maybe don't understand, like mm. tenure is basically the thing that kind of enables your permanent employment down the line, really? Right. Yeah. So when, if you're on tenure track, you get a three-year contract. And after three years, you you often go through a third year or critical review and they'll renew your contract. At the end of that, you want to apply for tenure, which gets you on a con like a, a contract that doesn't have an endpoint. Like you can still be fired, which I think is the thing that a lot of people don't recognize. But it's just that you're not having to renew that contract. It's just you actually have it and you will stay employed as long as you don't totally mess up. Job security in academia is not... Yeah. Mike and I talked about it in the last episode as well. Like, because him just recently moving to King's College, like that's the first time mm -hmm. he's really had. Like, he was quite fortunate, I think, with his, his his royal fellowship, royal engineering fellowship. But yeah, like job security is not something that is much of a given in in academia for the most part. Right, and if you you know if you do have to move schools, it often includes moving to a new state or a new country. Yep, like it's. It's not like there's, you know, 50 jobs in the city that I could apply for. Well, there are. I could apply if I didn't want to be, say, in academia. But academic jobs, you know, there might be, in a given year, there might be 20 places I can apply in the world. So it's a very different beast. Um, and this actually, I, I, you know, a lot of times when people talk to me about, like, academia versus the industry, the thing that I always come back to is, you know, there's trade-offs for both and it's really where your priorities are. So generally, <laughs> unless you are financially solvent somehow, you need to have some sort of income. <laughs> now, there's different ways to do that. Like you can join a AAA studio in which you will have a steady income. You can you know, work at a, do an indie on the side of a, you know, a regular full-time job, regular, whatever that means. In academia, like the, the steady income comes from the teaching. Like the teaching is part of what we do part, like that's how they can employ us <laughs> because who knows if the research will be successful or not, but the teaching is always necessary. And so you generally need some sort of steady income and it's a matter of what are you willing to do for that steady income and how can you get, like, if you want to be in games, how does that relate to the games you want to do? And so for me, because I don't care, I don't want to have to worry about market. I have to get a steady income some other way. So that either means indie or academia. I happen to really enjoy teaching and I enjoy doing super experimental stuff because the indie Indie scene, you also still need to concern, like consider market because you eventually would like that to be your main job, I assume. <laughs> and so for me, it just made the most sense to be in academia because now I can do the games I want to do. I make it, I retcon it into research 
please don't listen to this, my, <laughs> the chair of my school. Uh, but it's, you know, that is where that trade-off works best for me. And it sounds like for you, Tommy, that was not a good trade-off for you. Um, God, the, we'll have to do another episode at some point where you all interview <laughs> me because yes. it's been sort of the other way around. Um, for all of these but yeah the next one it'll just be like the the gang of four against tommy and then you're just like what are you doing and why is this happening and all that jazz <laughs> it will um, feel like an interview it, job interview yeah like i don't know my 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 feelings on it are are nuanced and lengthy but i found it difficult to balance so many different things i was trying to do in a way that mm -hmm. that i felt financially stable but creatively satisfied. And right. I guess, I mean, the, sh the, the short version of this story is at some point, the teaching stopped being as fun as making the videos. Yeah. And that kind of led down the path that I'm on now, where I still really enjoy making YouTube videos. I still like every episode of AI and games is something that I really invest a lot of myself into. And then subsequently enough, dealing with the reality of how do you make yourself financially sustainable while you're also involved in a creator economy, which is never financially sustainable. So, right. yeah, the last few years of my life have been bonkers. something, something. Let's, yeah, let's call it, let's call <laughs> it bonkers, something. Um, but yeah, but no, I think this has been super exciting, actually. I think we could easily do this for twice as long, but you also need to teach. <laughs> and you also said we yes. don't want to talk longer than George did on his episode. So we love you, George. But we love you, uh, George. <laughs> but yeah, I think <laughs> this is this is actually probably a good time for us to start thinking about wrapping up, get you get mm -hmm. you out in the world as well, because it's nice and early still, relatively where you are. Um, yeah, it's almost out. noon. So. There you go. See, and like over here, it's 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 tea time, as we'd call it in <laughs> England. It's it's tea time. You know, dinner, dinner. Your big meal. That was a very good English accent. Oh, it was terrible. It was terrible. Um, I can do multiple different types as well. Um, but yeah, I think oh, I don't even know. Like, there's been so many cool things to talk about in this episode, and I've just really enjoyed hearing your story. Like, because this is the first <laughs> time I've actually properly heard this as well. So, it, like, I've got a lot out of this, and I realized that this will be a conversation for another time. But just how many things how many overlaps you and I have in so many ways that I didn't realize we actually had until now. That's awesome. It yeah. is, it's very cool. Like I, I feel like there was so many parts of your story where I'm like, oh my God, this is really hitting home to me. <laughs> like, <laughs> quite significantly, like particularly talking about childhood and upbringing and like career paths and everything else. So mm -hmm. absolutely. I hope it's been of value. I think also I, one of the things I love is when people listen to the podcast and they're like, oh wow, that was really interesting to hear about or just getting to hear the nitpick i think your whole bit just particularly talking about your path in grad school and your your time at ea um <laughs> people are going to be interested on that note hopefully if you are interested do, you do by all means reach out to us one of the easiest ways if you want to reach out to us here at the podcast and if you want to ask Anna a question or two is we have our email address which is branchingfactor at aiandgames.com Please don't sign us up for spam, but do reach out with some nice questions. Let us know your thoughts and feelings. And critically, also, if you're a member of the AI and Games Patreon, you can head on over to the Branching Factor part of the Discord server, and you can send us questions and comments and what have you there as well. We'd love to hear from you. Um, on that note, where else can they find you? And where, where can they find you out on the interwebs? 
Oh man. Um, so I am on Twitter, sort of. <laughs> it's like as we all little, are, like yeah. kind of still there. Yes. Kind of still there. Uh so I am Antropy, which is A-N-N-E-T-R-O-P-Y. And then I'm also I'm on Mastodon. Uh it's Antropy at hci.social i believe you're already doing and better than me i, I was going to say every time someone asked me if i'm on mastodon I'm like, i don't know the address i'm on just google <laughs> yeah. ai and games mastodon, you'll find me. <laughs> yeah uh i'm also on discord but yeah the if you want to email me my email address is unicorn at gatech g-a-t-e-c-h dot edu i gotta ask how did you get that uh they allow aliases. So I just, somebody had taken Anne at Got Tech. And so I was frustrated by that. And Kashana Gray, who does another, she's, she also does games research. She had Unicorn at wherever she was at the time. And you mentioned that nobody really did art and programming. So back when I was in the industry, I would often be called a unicorn because I did both art and programming. Yeah. And so I was just like, oh my God, I need to get unicorn. And so, yeah, now I'm unicorn at gatech.edu. Fantastic. Um, yeah. Well, well, there you go. Unicorn at gatech.edu. That's absolutely, I love it. I love it. It's so good. Of course, I'm available on AI and games on Twitter. I think I'm on one of the Mastodons. I think I'm on the game dev Mastodon, which I can't remember what the URL for that is. Just find AI and games on YouTube. You'll find everything that you need to know there. Um, Google. On that note, of course, a thank you to all of our, first of all, to all of you who are listening to this episode or you're watching it, courtesy of AI and Games Plus. Also, critically, to our Patreon supporters, because it's thanks to them that we get to make all these episodes. They get to listen to them early. They get a whole bunch of extra stuff, including we've got to do the obligatory shout-outs to our executive producers on the Patreon tier to scup it up. Scup it up. I'm going to get your name right, mate, eventually. Trust me, I'm going to get there. This is the second time I've scuppered it. Scuppered, scup it up. Scup it up. Ah! Mm. Brian O'Malan, Bernard Werner, and Michael Russell. Thank you all very much for your continued Yay. support. Ah! But yeah, this Thank has you. been this has been Branching Factor. We're going to wrap up this episode. This has been great. Thank you. Thank you, Thank Anne. Thank you. Thank you, Tommy. Cue the outro music. Cue the outro music. Thank you very much, everyone. We'll catch you all very soon for our Voltron. We're finally going to get everyone together for the next episode. That's the plan for episode five. We'll see you there. Bye. Bye. The Branching Factor podcast is hosted and produced by me, Tommy Thompson, with support from Anne Sullivan, George Osborne, Mike Cook, and Quang Yun. Our theme music is provided courtesy of Ben Ridge, and the logo and thumbnail art is thanks to Helen O'Dell. Special thanks to Shraddha Gumta and Phoebe Trigg for their additional production support, and of course, to all of you out there listening. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Branching Factor. Wherever you are in the world, be sure to stay safe, have fun, and we'll be back. <laughs>